Hey everybody, who's ready for a different kind of What a Beautiful podcast? This is episode 53, and I hope everyone is ready to read a book. We're going to be a little more refined tonight than we usually are. Oh, let me let me pull, let me pour out two fingers of whiskey and just like just sit back and start sipping. Like, just like swish maybe... it around a little bit, just so you know you look like you know what you're doing. Oh yeah, just like sit back, start smoking a cigar. Smoke alarm goes off. Keep smoking the cigar. Just you know, that's that's what sophisticated people do, and we're a sophisticated podcast. Yeah, if you've ever listened to five minutes of this show, then you know that me and Jack are the <laughs> highest quality of classy humans. And we've never done anything obscene in our lives. I have so many object de arts around me. <laughs> like, I could put my hands on like three Fabergé eggs. So object don't even step to art. Me. <laughs> object de art. <laughs> I, you know what? You could pronounce <sighs> language is a lie. All right, it's made up. Anyway, so yeah, like we said last week, we are gonna cover. Uh, well, we're gonna basically going to have a discussion about manga in theory and practice, which was recently released by Viz in English. Uh, mm. Me and Jack both read it all the way through. Uh, I don't necessarily think that you, that you can be spoiled by anything in here. Uh, but if you want to go into the book fresh, which I kind of recommend you do, because I just overall recommend that you read this book, uh, just put this mm-hmm. episode off to the side a bit and yeah. uh, come back to it after... After you read it, so then you can kind of join in on our on our little conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about spoiling this book and like, wh- that's kind of like trying to spoil a math book. <laughs> it's like, guys, <laughs> you'll never know what happened. You learn trigonometry. It's fucked up. Yeah, this is like basically a weird textbook. Yeah, interestingly enough, because like the way, I don't know. I'm very surprised this got an English release. I'll say that much. Because... I'm very happy that it did because it oh, was like an absolute joy to read as far as like textbooks go. But that's just our boy Iraqi with his uh with his way of carrying himself. Yeah, and he, he did a very he did a very good job. Hope that horror book gets localized at some point, but right now we're gonna finish up with our big bird friend and our little goblin dog friend at uh, the Pet Shop at the Gates of Hell, Part Four. Yeah, we open one. up. We open up, and uh, Pet Shop kind of got like cut in the jugular. So like that's gross. Yeah, like here's the thing: when bird, when regular birds like get hurt in the wild, they just die. Yeah, <laughs> like they're they're basically as majestic and great as birds are. They're basically just like hol- Their their bones are like tortilla chips. <laughs> their bones are made of glass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love that we have the uh, the gel pen coloring again. I really oh yeah, like the that. the blood the way the blood is colored actually looks like really neat. the The texture of the page actually looks like it was canvas, which is really cool. And if you see like in the gold stripes, it just says JoJo over and over and over, which is fun. That's fun. Oh, I love that. I love yeah. when that happens. We even see the. Uh... We see the uh, oh, the BT arrow. arrows, yeah, the yeah. arrow motif going on, yeah. Oh man, I love that. Yeah, um, but yeah, Pet Shop got cut, and Iggy's gloat is like, oh yeah, gotcha, dumbass bird. <laughs> I forget what my Iggy voice was, but I think it's that. And we get a super majestic uh, Jotaro like double page spread. Yeah, maybe Holy like shit. one of the best cover pages in all of Stardust Crusaders. Like, oh my god, it is 
up there. God. And, you know, I'm looking at this, and I think this particular uh, piece here might have been what inspired mm. the uh, first ending animation for Stardust Crusaders. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Because we've got... Oh, man. There's so many cool, like, motifs. We've got birds everywhere. We've got some feathers. we got a really good drawing of Iggy. Um, Jotaro version black here. And very dignified. Very, very good boy here. Pet Shop at the Gates of Hell, part four. And we open up in the sewer that uh, we ended at before. And now Iggy just looks like a Dragon Ball Z character. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just if like, you, if he's you like cut a, off his ears, if he's Krillin Frieza. was a dog. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Krillin died so much, he got reincarnated as Iggy. He's yeah, like, Shenron oh, got well. sick of bringing him back, so he's just like, all right, <laughs> your wish is granted, but he's a dog now. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Stop dying. <laughs> um, but this is where the rest of this fight is going to take place in this fucking sewer. <laughs> yeah, this gross nonsense place. So Pet Shop just got cut, splurting blood. Like, no bird should has any right to this much blood. Like, wh- where's this coming from? Look at how much you're bleeding. You better stay still or you'll bleed to death. First of all, I don't give a rat's ass about you or your master, Dio. You got a few good hits on me with your ice missiles. So let's. So this makes us even, okay? And, uh, the way Iggy emotes, it's like a man is on all fours <laughs> and like looking up because he's got this weird muscular chest. It's really bad. And the fool is just grinning behind him like the fool's like his posse. Like yeah, the fool's just like yeah, fuck him up, Iggy, <laughs> fuck him up, Krillin. <laughs> uh. Pet Shop refuses to be fucked up, and uh, using his wing as fingers, uh, gets some of his blood, licks it, because, you know, birds, yeah, birds do that. That's how birds work. (laughs) That's how birds do. Uh, And Iggy is very taken aback. He's like, what's a freak doing? Does he think he's Bruce Lee or something? Hey, I said I'll stay away from your boss's house. Let's call the fight off. Come on, come on. This dog knows what Bruce Lee is. God damn it. You don't think Iggy has watched, like, Bruce Lee movies from the window of a Radio Shack or something? They had Radio Shacks (laughs) in 19... Yeah, that's, that's when Radio Shack was, like, peak. So he definitely knows Bruce Lee. And now we get to see the first, uh, actual... Uh, manifestation of Horus and it's dope like there's a statue legend of this and it's like what what if a bird but six wings you know what it is it's fucking Ridley oh it is Ridley it's It's like it's Mecha Ridley Ridley. yeah shit when did Metroid come out uh Uh, late 80s Oh, okay. So, definitely. I mean, I kind of doubt that. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but it sure does look like fucking Ridley. Yeah, and we start, and it's a very cool, like, he has uh, Hyperfan green eyes. Yeah, I was about to point out, like, the eyes, because we see those, that kind of eyes on, like, later, more mechanical stands, what don't have a face, like, Yeah, it kind of just becomes, like, a bit of a theme. Yeah. And... (laughs) And immediately the next panel, uh, Horace looks really dopey. Because it's just like, crawl! <laughs> but Pet Shop looks The fuck cool. you looking at? Keep scrolling. <laughs> Keep scrolling. 
keeps scrolling. Um, and he, I don't know what the, what like cauterizing, but with ice is called, but that's what he does. I'm kind of, I kind of don't think that that's how that works, but we'll let it it slide. I mean, you, you freeze the skin, stop the blood. He'll, he'll hurt. Like. He's not good. It's not. It, so, it's not as effective as as cauterizing would be. No, no. So, so that's what your stand looks like. You, you stop the bleeding by freezing your wound. I need to get out of here. Um, but unfortunately for Iggy, uh, the exit has now been sealed with ice, and he's kind of just trapped in this shit tunnel uh, with this giant bird ice monster and this smaller bird monster. And he's in it, for a bad time. And, oh my god, we actually get a craw. Look at this craw. It's perfect. (laughs) The way Iraqi makes a bird face emote is very good. Like, this is a top-tier drawn bird. Um, And we see that the ice missiles actually come from uh, Horus's, like, six weird two-finger hands. And kind of just, like, chucks them at Iggy. But he, to seal the, uh, the other exit that he was going towards. And he's just, he's, uh, he's a poor little dog that's just not getting any respect from this ice monster. No, I mean, this bird, it just wants him dead. And, (laughs) and that's what he's gonna do. Yeah, it's crazy. It's not just persistent. It's a stalking, killing machine. And if it catches me, it won't just kill me. It'll eat me. And then the then Pet Shop starts laughing, and th- at that point, <laughs> it's like, oh boy, it's like, gah, 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 gah. <laughs> um, but Pet Shop uses the same trick before. He like ice is a pretty overpowered stand. Like, yeah, what's my stand? Ice. That yeah. that's it. And gets Iggy's foot caught uh, right before he can get to the exit. And unleashes another ice barrage. And as the the ice mist clears, we see Iggy's cut off paw still in this uh, ice. So he, like, ugh, chewed off. No, that's a slice. He sliced off his own paw with the fool to get free. Oh, man. Uh, and Pet Shop smiles and laughs again. It's, Poor <laughs> it's Iggy. I mean, this, this is only the beginning of Iggy's hurt, unfortunately. Yeah, but we do cut back to Team Joj, um, where they've been waiting for this beggar, and the and Polnareff is just like, the beggar said he'd be able to fight Dio's manor in three hours. I guess he couldn't find it, Abdul. I wish I'd <laughs> thought of this sooner, but perhaps it's for the best if he can't find it. Maybe he hasn't come back because he found it. Oh, oh, maybe, maybe that is what happened. It, it is what happened. Um... And across the way from them, we see a drainage pipe from the sewer that they were in. And we see poor Iggy at the bottom of this, like, weird river lake, uh, sitting in, like, an igloo made out of the fool with some breathing tubes coming off the top. And he's just yelling about his foot. Oh, man. I like that he's, like, just like, yeah, this sucks. Ah, shit, I'll have the Speedwagon Foundation make me a prosthetic leg, but now I'm pissed, that damn bird. I'll make it pay for this, damn it. And (laughs) Pet Shop is underwater, and before you call bullshit, 
uh, Araki <laughs> Araki put... calls your bullshit. <laughs> birds can dive into water like humans and canines. A bird uses its lungs to breathe, but birds have additional organs called air sacs where they store air. Birds have five, five to six air sacs in their chest and stomach. This is the reason why they can fly at altitudes of 6,000 and 7,000 meters, which would make humans fall unconscious. Even if they are strangled, their internal air supply will extend their life for a few minutes. Thus, a bird can stay underwater much longer than a dog. <laughs> Thanks, and, Rocky. Because uh, that, that's in the book, too. He talks about, like, getting your facts right. And I can just see him sitting at his table, like... Ah oh, shit! If I have this bird underwater, people are gonna like call me or fax me. It's like <laughs> birds can't swim. I'll show you. I'll show them all. Birds can swim. Birds can swim really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck you, readers. <laughs> so Iggy is Iggy can hear that this sound. It dove into the water. It's gliding underwater. This can't be. It's heading right for me. Is it smash? As a huge icicle bursts through the wall of his sand igloo. And Iggy's face is something else there. It's like half... It's like two halves of two different faces were put together. Like, surprised and like, oh. <laughs> and the water starts to rush in and we see Pet Shop, like, right at the porthole of the water rushing. And it's like, it's not burr, how could it be underwater? This, this is impossible. I, I can hear its icicles coming this way. Um, and as the icicles are shot towards the fool, uh, it gets its arms up and, like, just swipes them away like some, like, this sand monster. Everything's a monster here. Nothing's yeah. good. Um, but he's able to reflect one of the icicles right back into Pet Shop and just narks one of its wings. Like, oh, look at it. It, this this very surprised bird in pain as one of its wings just gets like torn in half like i guess if you like birds this is this is not good for you but you knew this coming in oh man and pet shop is flung upwards as iggy collapses in exhaustion like how aren't you like that um but it's it's not over for iggy because Ice starts to form from the icicle that was popped in and completely engulf uh, the fool igloo, which also snaps his air pipes, which means he's it's trying to suffocate me. It, it's trying to bury me alive. <laughs> God. Uh, there's so much... A lot of this is just Iggy yelling to himself, but, but it's not even like... It, this is narration. This is well, not yeah, him. We basically followed this whole thing from a first-person perspective through Iggy. Yeah. I can't hold him off anymore. It's going to collapse on top of me. I need to dig myself out fast. And in perhaps one of the best moments of this fight, uh, Iggy digs down into the riverbed. And what does he find? Oh, it's Pet Shop. Pet Shop is under the ground. <laughs> How did he get here? It doesn't it's matter. It's the bird! It's the bird! Ah! Is, it's too big for a thumbnail, but this is so good. <laughs> it's the bird! And an icicle starts to form in Pet Shop's throat, and the ice balls start to form. It's gonna fire an ice missile! Oh, my stand is beside behind me! There's no way to escape! Shit! Shit! Oh, God! Yeah, yes, this is the only way. I'll let the dome break on purpose. 
and the dome breaks the pressure from that catapults him into pet shop and with his fangs bared he bites down on pet shop's beak as the icicle is about to form and i i don't know what that sound is but i imagine it's a pop as pet shop kind of just like goes <laughs> yeah yeah he so basically he bites down and it destroys pet shop's beak like it yeah. shatters like a fucking pebble yeah, but as the icicle was already forming, uh, so the rest of Pet Shop just kind of, like... Explodes. Like, bikin! <laughs> but as Iggy pops up uh, from underwater, it's like, ah, I'm gonna drown. Fuck this. <laughs> I'm supposed to live a trouble-free life. Damn it, I messed it up. Uh, just in time for our friend, the uh, the owner of the two beheaded dogs, comes up and saves him. It's like, I was walking by and I saw you drowning. That bird must have done this to you, just like my dogs. It's okay, I don't see that bird nearby. Don't die, you can do it, I'll bandage you up. And that damn bird, Pet Shop, Stan, the Egyptian god Horus, stat- statues, dead. <laughs> oh, lord. It... Iggy's last uh, panel here, his last face, he's just so done. He's yeah. done with everything. It's like, ugh. Yeah, he, he's he's definitely had enough of whatever yeah. of whatever he wants to deal with. That that was it. <laughs> and that brings us to the next arc where we're gonna cut it. Uh, Darby the gamer. We dealt with Darby the gambler, but what happens when he's a gamer? Yeah. So Darby the gamer is 11 parts the fuck what yeah jesus so this is gonna be a a full hour of coverage uh next week i think oh yeah that's gonna be a gamer cast yeah and and vanilla ice is gonna be its own thing because that's eight parts or we could split that in in twain and then yeah, so we have yeah we have Darby the Gamer, we have Vanilla Ice, and then we have a little mini chapter in between, and then Dio's, Dio's world. world, Dio's world, oh, all he's here. eighteen parts of it. Jesus Christ, <laughs> that's too, that's too many. That's too many. What are you gonna do with all those parts? A lot, actually. Tell, tell a good story. No. <laughs> Uh, we shall see, Jack. We shall see. Anyway, that's enough of the that's enough of the manga for for one episode. Oh yeah, enough of these shitty comics. Yeah, comics are for nerds and children. Uh, yeah, the, let's shift n- over to a real book for free thinking adults. Oh wow! <laughs> so, <laughs> manga in theory and practice. Um, do you want to lead us off, Andrew? I know you. Uh had a bunch to say to start with and we'll just go back and forth this is going to be an experimental part we're just going to like highlight some parts that we thought stood out to us maybe some things that shed light on jojo as a whole and just fun things in general it's we're playing it fast and loose here as always yeah so we're gonna just like just just go off on this book pretty much so i'm gonna go off on this book (laughs) (laughs) we're classy jack yeah, let me take another sip of whiskey. 
Turns out it was Sailor Jerry the whole time. <laughs> Turns out it was Seagram 7 and I'm dead. <laughs> okay, so uh, so I guess just as like a overview of this book, mm-hmm. uh, Araki just wrote this as basically to give his method to how he got started in, in creating manga mm-hmm. and his way of doing things. Yeah. So... The first, basically the thesis, he gives us the thesis of the book at the beginning, where he Mm. basically wants to teach us about the royal road to creating Mm. manga, which is the most Japanese fucking thing in the universe. The royal road. Along with the golden way. Is the golden way the same thing as the royal road? No, the the royal road road is like the, is the general theory. The golden way is his thing. Right, right, okay. So the Golden Way is another thing he brings up, which is basically just what he a term he uses to describe his method that he mm. imply that that if you follow the gold if you like do the Golden Way, you'll be following the Royal Road. And very Japanese. <laughs> it's super Japanese, but that's why it's great. Yeah, it, it works because so we get such great uh, like headings as follow the Royal Road, but carry a map. <laughs> So, oh. so basically, the beginning is he just kind of goes into like the op- the the little details about what he about the what the royal road is and how he follows it and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the first major thing he goes into is he wants to just talk about the difference between one mangaka and himself. So he brings up, uh, forgive me, I'm gonna butcher this, but uh, Yude Tamago, uh, yeah, that's also known as the creator of uh, Kinnikuman Man slash Ultimate Muscle. And yeah, this is a duo. This is two people going by Yude Tamago. Oh, right. Okay, that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, so basically this manga duo was basically like a Rocky's heroes. Like, they, they, he, he looked up to how they did things, and he thought that Ultimate Muscle was a great example of a good manga, and he wanted to sort of follow, follow the way that he did that. But his whole thing was he knew that he had to be original. Like, yeah, and, and you know that sounds like a real basic thing, but I at the time that he was getting started, there was a lot of copycats. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a, a big part of this in general. Um, he says that if you make an imitation of a popular thing, and even if your thing now becomes popular, that's not the royal road. Even if you have like a bunch of one-off successes, if you don't have the sustained success that comes from uh, your own creative pursuit that's not the royal road and that's not going to like make you a successful mangaka I think right is... and he brings that he brings that idea full circle because like spoiler alert at the very end of the book like basically the whole last chapter is him saying all right now all of this said don't listen to any of it <laughs> well that's the thing that comes up in like a lot of different media like know the rules so you can break them Exactly. And that's how Araki basically figured it all out. Because he, his earliest uh, works were very, I, I don't want to say formulaic, because that has a negative connotation, but like, no, he, de- no, he definitely stuck, stuck to the, to the rules. And um, so that's when we jump right into, funny enough, we jump right into him talking about how he created Poker Under Arms. Because that was the first work he ever got published. And when Poker Under Arms 
Poker Under Arms wasn't the first thing he ever made, but it was ever it was the first thing that he ever got published because he submitted it to the Shonen Jump uh, to a Shonen Tezuka Jump Award. contest. Tezuka Award, right? right, right. Yeah. And, and I think he said he placed second, and there was no first place. <laughs> <laughs> and but as he's going into, as we see a little bit of arm poker, poker under arms, whatever you want to call it, um, he talks a bit about what makes a first page good. Like I, this gave me good insight to the editing process of manga. Like I didn't realize, or I had some idea, but like editors are. The, the wall that you must cross if you want to be a mangaka and to hear him talk about how editors receive so many uh submissions that like they can immediately tell like what is a good manga and what is a bad manga by looking at the first page um so you want that first page to be like the absolute best thing you can be so like they pull it all out of the envelope and they're like oh let's take a let's take a look at this bullshit now what has this guy got to say? And you can uh, tell Araki was predisposed for this sort of uh, harsh environment because he would t- he was saying that like you know a lot of his shit got rejected and it like devastated mm-hmm. him, but he never once thought to himself that it was the editor having it out for him. No, he, nev- the he editor... never took it personally. He never. He always took it as this is why this is why I need to improve. Yeah, and he talks a bit about. Um, cool shock bt um the first cover and why that made a good cover um just run right through the series of black and white arrows established a recurring design the shadow of a hand falling on his head suggests mystery and suspense the color and shapes of the background present a modernistic feel the squirrel perched on his shoulder symbolizes friendship so even though the cover might look like a lot of nonsense each element was carefully considered and that's really cool to oh, give yeah. like to that's really the thing, draw it's you like, in it's all supposed to be subconscious like we're not supposed to like we're not supposed to look at that cover and say oh this is cool because of the hand and the arrows and the squirrel and blah 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 it all comes together to make something that catches your eye even if like you know we would see that and like giggle at it because mm-hmm. it's funny but it still caught our attention yeah it's it's effective. Like, this book is so inside baseball. Like, it's insane. He even describes uh, it as that he probably shouldn't be telling us this because <laughs> it's kind of like giving away trade secrets. But he feels like he wants to pass on his knowledge to the next generation of manga cause. Yeah. And then now we get into arm poker. And the first... Uh, I'm going to go from C's unclaimed territory, if that's where you... Just to so you know. Okay. Like, people following at home we're just going like front to back on this book so far like this is page 30 for instance um and he's talking about how he chose the western setting because there really wasn't a manga at that point that was like that had a western setting and that that the uh the image of main character striving to be the best he could be amid the vast and lonesome desert was a beautiful sight and i thought it was cool it resonated with the image of the great Clint Eastwood riding his horse across the wilderness and drifting onto the next town. So, like... Clint Eastwood comes up a lot in this book. <laughs> Clint his... Eastwood, uh, how much he hates Kick-Ass 2 and Frozen. <laughs> oh, no, he loves Frozen. He no, loves, yes, he loves Frozen. He loves Frozen, hates Kick-Ass 2, and considers uh, Clint Eastwood to be his ideal view of a hero. 
and it's so goofy. But nobody will be surprised to know that he basically invented Jotaro as just his Clint Eastwood. Oh, of course, of yeah. course. And um, that's why Jotaro continues to be his favorite character that he ever created. Yeah, because he talked about how he saw um, what Clint Eastwood movie was it? Uh, Good, Bad, the Ugly. Like when he was a child, like he went with his father to a, a, a theater, and he's been seeing Clint Eastwood movies ever since. And it's just like, yes, that's that's his aesthetic. And I, this book is so sincere, you can't help but love it. It's uh, Oh, yeah. It all just comes across. Like, the way I described it to friends when I would tell them about it after I read it, I was like, it's basically like I was reading this on the train every morning for like a mm-hmm. week. And I would I basically describe it as just Iraqi giving me a pep talk every morning. <laughs> he, like, brings you a sign. It's like, all right, this, this is what you got to do. This is... This is the the key to success every morning. Yeah, um, and and you could just feel the color and the words. Like it's it's just like the our favorite vampire man sitting next to us whispering this in our ear. <laughs> but uh, so we get a couple. Well, just just in terms of just what this book gives you is a couple uh, officially translated pages of Arm Poker, which is cool. Yeah, and because this goes with. Poker under arms. Draw your first page like this. And uh, but first, let me back up and start with the title page. The straightforward approach to a manga's cover or title page is to draw the main character. But Poker under arms is to be an atypical manga, a western, and one involving a card game battle. Instead of customary main character, I came up with a composition where the largest element was the legs of a man with his face hidden, who had been shot and was falling over backwards. I put the faces of the two poker-playing gunmen on the playing cards on either side. So, already, he's like, alright, I know the rules, I knew what they were, but I was like, what if I was different? And it's, like, we didn't re- talk about it a whole lot when we were doing Poker Under Arms, but, like, the first, co- like, the cover is pretty striking. Oh, like, yeah, it's very unique. It, it's, it, it kind of reminds me of, like, a Silver Age comic book cover in a way, how it just basically, like... How, like, uh, comic book covers in the Silver Age were just, like, basically advertisements for the issue. Like, <laughs> look really? what happens in this issue. Oh, it was like, it was or, a Or, like, how will Superman scene? get out of this one? Oh, God. So that's, like, kind of what he did here. Like, he showed uh, the character portraits, and he showed... Let me get a better look at this. Like, yeah, he shows the guy getting shot, and the title... And, and the, the cards and the, and the gun. cards and like it's just like one giant advertisement for what you're gonna get inside yeah um and he also mentions that like the narrator at the beginning was set, like set as a framing device um set to provide part of the typical like five w's one h like where when why what and how i think i got all of them um Standing in frame as the narrator, for some reason, standing alone while drinking wine beside a picnic table. My intention was to present a mystery to the reader. Why is this man drinking wine there? Who is this man anyway? Something I ask myself every day. (laughs) And, like, it worked. Immediately. Like, who's this Joey Joestar-looking motherfucker? And why is he here? And, like, that's a, a use... That's an effective device to, like, keep a reader going on like yeah i mean as far as like a a very uh like i guess simple one-shot comic book it's like very effective Mm -hmm. really draws you in real quick and oh man these scans are beautiful yep an absolute (laughs) blessing 
but before oh. we spend too much time on on poker, I want yeah, to let's move a little on. bit. So chapter two, I'm just gonna skip over because it basically just lays out the the outline for the whole rest of the book. Yeah, it talks about like real quick. Um, in order of importance to have like the four major fundamentals of manga structure: character, story, settings, themes. And he calls this uh, what is it, like what does he call the like the four like the Japanese four-word thing. Um, we'll get to it. It comes up. Yeah. Um, but move. we're just going to skip right to... Uh, ch- wait, was chapter two four pages? I guess so. But, huh, okay. Chapter two was like five pages. Chapter three, designing characters. So this is the golden way to make a protagonist. I just want to read you guys this passage. <laughs> go go ahead. I know you want to. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so this is, he wants you to take this little quiz, all right? I'm going to describe a character. He has an honest heart. When faced with a situation where others would lose spirit, he remains optimistic and overcomes the challenge. He has a sense of justice, cares for his friends, and is a master of martial arts. His signature technique is the Kamehameha. By now, I'm sure you know I'm talking about Goku. <laughs> Take this simple character, perfectly suited for a shonen manga, and pair it with a Kuratoriyama's art, and you get Dragon Ball. So basically, what he, he's using Goku as an example here of just like you need your protagonist to immediately connect with your readers, and yeah. he he places heavy importance on the main character, which is which is funny because a lot of JoJo is like ensemble casts, but even with the ensemble cast though, there's always a central figure. Yeah, there's always the standout. Cause, yeah, like which, he's, of course, is the JoJo. Of course. It's always the Joe. Yeah. Um, of the four fundamentals, characters are supreme. If you have effective characters in place, you will be undefeatable. Taken to the extreme, this means that compelling characters negate the need for story or setting. And, like, I, I kind of want to see an attempt at that where you just, like, eschew story and setting. It's like, these are my characters. He, here's Rick. Here's Frank. Like... Yeah, I mean, Let's isn't see that, what isn't they that got. just like slice of life? No, because that's still the set. There's a, still a setting in place. But it's like, usually like a pretty generic setting, though, like a like a town or a school or something. The whole focus is on the characters. Oh, definitely. Like slice of life. Um, if you looked at it like a stand power rating, like the peak would be at characters. Uh, story would be like barely anything. And then setting would have some because there's still some flavor in like where the story is based. Like if it's a school, like a Nichijo, or uh, like just a regular town, there's still something gotten out of there. And this right. is completely subjective, like going from manga to manga. So it's not um, something to super dwell on. I also um, like this other passage. Uh... But you mustn't simply copy another character, no matter how quintessential that character may be. For example, I'll base a character on Goku, an optimistic youth who cares for his friends, never gets discouraged no matter how big or small the challenge, and is a kickboxer with a signature move called the Kosen Carry, light beam kick. This is not a character that will appeal to readers because Goku already exists. (laughs) Oh, and no rehash will ever seem fresh. And that leaves an obvious question. How can you make an appealing character without imitating another? And So from here, there on, he kind of goes into, like, basics of, like, character motivation and, and, and just all that sort of general stuff. 
yeah there's one specific in under what makes a good motivation i want to touch on um uh the three principles of shonen jump are friendship effort and victory like i never thought about that before but it's super obvious yeah uh, like likewise shonen manga readers will strongly empathize with what they feel is good and right and will reject what they feel is unethical because of this characters such as death notes light yagami who kills again and again even if the targets of his assassinations are criminals themselves require skillful technique for the mangaka to win over the readers on the reverse side characters who are 100 percent virtuous can come across as fake and unlikable to avoid this, you need to include in your main character weaknesses or faults or more human desires. He always makes a point to, like, point out that there are certain things that you should only do if you really know what you're doing. Yeah. But there's things you can do when you're starting out that are still just as effective but less risky. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, something, something like death note was a very high risk high reward sort of situation yeah Whereas something like dragon ball was low risk you know potentially high reward but much lower risk in terms of like basic story structure yeah you look at original dragon ball and it's just weird little kid teams up with teenage girl to find wish orbs and get yeah. their wish granted the execution was just like incredible that yeah the execution was fucking flawless and that's why it's as remembered as it is but it's a very simple story structure oh yeah whereas death note is a much more complicated setup not <laughs> none it doesn't necessarily have a complicated plot but it definitely has a complicated setup for a shonen manga yeah it gets a bit twisty at some points but it's like it it's it's interesting that it works the way that it does because right. Light as a main character is not, is is like not a Shonen Jump protagonist, uh, as laid out here, um, but because his uh, thoughts and motivations are so well fleshed out, um, he works whether or not the reader empath- empath- empathizes with him. Yeah, it's um, really impressive that it ends up working out because you're not supposed to like Light. You know, no. a lot of edgy teens. I was about into, to say a lot. Yeah, of edgy a lot teens. of edgy teens are real into light, <laughs> but the writers definitely did not intend for you to empathize with him. No. Um, and speaking of empathy, uh, the section bravery begets empathy. I often have my characters display their bravery in my stories. In a similar dilemma in JoJo's seventh story arc, Steel Ball Run, the villain. A present valentine under attack by hero johnny stan begs johnny to let him go and offers to bring back johnny's dead friend from another dimension whoops probably should have said that one uh <laughs> yikes <laughs> yeah i i halfway through you know what <laughs> gonna stop right there uh readers are drawn in by the suspense they want to see how he will overcome this dilemma and they will keep turning the pages in anticipation so it there's something in here that he wrote about uh, Valentine as a character, and I'm mm-hmm. trying... I want to find... But uh, here's some stuff about, about Dio in here. Oh, yeah, it, the allure of evil characters. In the first story arc of JoJo, I always intended to make Dio look cool as he charged headlong down the villain's path. But I think <laughs> that it's due to that catharsis that some readers took to the character with incredible zeal. So basically, he's just saying <laughs> yeah. that he made a villain so evil, and he ruined... Jo- uh, jonathan's life so much that like he he built up the tension to when jonathan first punches dio in the face it's mm-hmm. like it's you just release 
By providing an outlet for the ugly feelings that we all share, you can depict a more lifelike range of emotions than those of only goodness, and in doing so, you can effectively evoke readers' empathy. If you can create a truly evil character, your manga will be more likely to become a classic. That's that's interesting. Because going back to, like, Death Note, like, Light was evil. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah, he was an absolute scumbag. And that yeah. was the whole point. Yeah, and that's exactly what this is your manga will be like death note is a classic you create create a truly evil character because they're so memorable because like their motivations are well thought out and they're just like whole hog evil like i can see how that would like get stuck in the collective like unconscious right oh man all right, so before we get too stuck on this one chapter, I just want to read this passage uh, to the folks about Valentine, so I found it. Oh, and yeah, it's just, ahead. in the JoJo Arcs Law run, the major villain is the deeply patriotic President Valentine. And from that perspective, his stated goals may be more just. In fact, I suspect his intentions line up with those of our real-world leaders, but he's willing to sacrifice powerless people to achieve just ends. And that part of his character is to the minds of the protagonist and the reader unquestionably and unforgivably evil. Well, depending on the reader, but... (laughs) Because of this, the character of President Valentine can never be the protagonist. I think this serves a good example of a point I made earlier. The readers won't empathize with a coward. And that's Mm -hmm. a really important point. Because at the end of the day, Valentine is a fucking coward. And that was the whole point of that. And so and so is Dio in a way, and oh, so yeah. he took and the... so was Kira, and so is Diavolo, and so was Pucci. They they were all fucking cowards, and that's always how Araki makes his villain because they always go basically go crying for mom near the end. Yeah, and it works. Like it's very satisfying. Like no matter what uh, trials and tribulations, like the the main Joge, the main character has gone through, if at the end they defeat the villain in a satisfying way that like uh emphasizes their bravery their determination over the villain's uh cowardice over their like la- over their empty heart which is a phrase i heard uh recently and that i love um it will come across as more genuine as more of a complete story to say yeah and even using Diavolo as an example, which is probably Araki's weakest villain in terms yeah, of character development. I think so. But but was still it was still satisfying to see him get the shit kicked out of him. Because oh, yeah. well, that fight was done. There was he didn't have much character development, but there was a lot of storytelling that happened in that fight. Oh yeah, there's a lot of lore. Yeah, so it still it still felt satisfying to see him get kicked get the shit kicked out of him. Because at the end of the day, you always want to see these heroes that you've been following find, like, the cowardly bad guy who's been mm-hmm. pulling the strings and just give it to him. Yeah. Oh, that, and, that passage of Valentine is the next page. Um, oh, yeah. So, another thing in this chapter before we move on is he shows this, uh, his method of his character history sheets. So, he basically, whenever oh, yeah. Iraqi makes a character, he basically makes, like, a, like a RPG character sheet for them. Mm-hmm. He writes out all their different traits. He has different sort of choices that he picks. And that way, whenever he goes into writing a manga, he already knows all of his character's traits. So he never... Well, 
I won't say never, but yeah. for the most part, he doesn't have any inconsistencies with his character development. Yeah, there's. I think character development wise, there's no inconsistencies. Story development wise, uh, maybe some, and the character profiles that we see sometimes at the beginning of chapters, like this is where he pulls from. Um, and I want to point out because this is a, a small passage, but really speaks to his opinion. It's the difference between drawing men and women. Um, like, there's interesting stuff in here. Like, uh, where is it? Um, in JoJo's sixth arc, Stone Ocean, I created a female protagonist named Jolene, and the only difference in the way I handled her as opposed to a male protagonist was not to draw her quite as beaten up, but she faces battles every bit as brutal as the main characters who came before. I'd say a little bit more, too, because <laughs> uh, Jonathan never had to deal with getting turned into a snail. Like, oh my god. I mean, I don't think... I don't think... Uh, Iraqi will ever top how gross Stone Ocean is. Oh no! Um, if Stone no... Ocean is fucking repulsive. If you yeah, it's read really it yet. gross at points. <laughs> uh, uh, if there's no difference between male and female characters, you may be wondering how you decide to when to use a female character. It's purely a matter of your own taste. Because um, he's talking about uh, Yasuho, uh, who I made as a variation on Koichi Hiroshi. From the, from the fourth arc, um, but I wanted to add romance to Jojolian, so I made the character a woman. I included many other female characters in Jojolian, but that was because I wanted to include elements of eroticism. Yep, he wanted to write a fucking seinen, and he did. Oh, he should, he, he that, wanted to draw that, the titty, and he yeah, drew the titty. That's, that's what he wanted to do. He'll use big words, but he really just wanted to write a fucking seinen. I don't really blame him, because he's been doing jump shit for his whole life. Yeah, why not? Yeah, um, And this last part, I think, is important. And then move on. Um, I think that even if you're creating a manga that includes love and romance, you could have it be between two male characters, as long as that fits with your manga's world. As long as your characters are appealing, you could get away with a world of all men. You have nothing to fear. Like, wow. Iraqi is woke. That's... <laughs> it, from, like, Japanese culture is really not... Ex oh, man, I don't want to make woke. generality... That's I think that's fair to say, like, because I don't want to make generalities of how Japan treats sexuality, because uh, based on things I've heard secondhand. But just say like it could be better, because it can always be better. Right. Um, all right. So let's jump over to chapter four. Obviously, yeah, there's yeah. more in here that we didn't get to, but read the book for yourself. There's a lot of yeah, good stuff yeah. in here. We're not gonna like go over every little detail. We'll no, just cover like the, the beginnings of all the chapters. So. So this is the chapter on story, which is the next part of his golden way. Oh, yeah, this is a dope chapter. Uh, so basically, we just, like, we start off, we learn a bit of how he starts writing his stories. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, Jack, what do you think is a good place to start off talking here? Because um, uh, the two main manga he starts off talking about here are Sade-san and uh, Kochikame. Which uh, you've you've seen the main character Kochikame. He's that uh, policeman dude. He shows up a lot in like the uh, the Jump All Stars. Oh right, thing. right, right. I know you, that. You've seen him. Uh, Sade-san is the longest running uh, anime anything to come out of Japan. Like o over sixty years. It's um, that's a slice of life. But he's talking about their longevity and how if you don't update your manga to reflect the changing times uh you're going to feel dated and that you're not going to be able to keep up with modern manga 
and that ties into how Jojo progresses through the years like each each part is definitely of its time and looking back like it's it's dated but reading Jojolian today like yeah this is modern manga this feels like it was written today right and it gives like a big contrast when you look at uh you kind of look at the the time scaling that happened in the beginning so we started with phantom blood and clearly phantom blood was before he had really thought of what his big master plan for jojo was so phantom phantom blood is his homage to horror and uh fist in the north star Mm -hmm. and like just just a classic like horror tropes so that's why he said it in Victorian London in the late 1800s. But then we quickly jump to the 1920s in New York, give it a little bit more of a contemporary feel, mm-hmm. but still have that classic setting. Yeah. And then we then we quickly jump to the 80s with Stardust <laughs> Crusaders, and then we just like slowly move closer and closer to the present as we go from all the parts from there up. Because then we go 80s to 90s, 90s to early 2000s, and mm. so on. Yeah, so on and so forth. Um uh, here, here's what I was thinking of before. The immutable rule of story writing. Um, this is the key shoten ketsu. Uh, the introduction, development, twist, and resolution. Uh, he calls this the immutable rule of story writing. The, the way that the story should follow should always be moving up. And that's where I think we will focus the, our time here. Because he's included uh, some very helpful graphs about the rule of rising and falling. Um, where is a good place? Oh, the common approach to battles and fighting manga is to always be raising the stakes and creating a question of how far it will go. The hero does this, the enemy does that. If the hero attacks like this, the enemy counters with that. The constant buildup may feel like an inflationary bubble that is bound to burst, but if you read any successful manga, you should find on the basic level the protagonist is always rising. The ideal pattern is for the protagonist to overcome progressively tougher challenges as the pages turn, and for those challenges to make the reader believe the, the hero might lose. But the hero will always win in the end. A story's success will pivot on finding good ideas to keep this positive motion building. Huh. So, taking... And yeah, that's Phantom Blood in a nutshell. It's like, started <laughs> from the bottom, now we're here, is what he's saying. <laughs> it really is. Um, hang on. Because... We see his examples of uh, like a few simple graphs of story structure, um, and we have a graph that's like rising upwards, uh, doesn't peak, but it's just going up. Shonen manga and sports manga must follow this arc, um, and and he has like yes, this is good story structure. Then we have not good story structure. Begins happy, then dips before rising again. Real life is like this, but it's flawed as a story. Example, hit girl giving up crime fighting and kick ass too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really love how much kick ass too pissed him off. It's so yeah. good. I'm going to read his whole like diatribe to you on it cuz it's uh it's worth hearing. Oh yeah, uh what page is that on in case people want to read that? Uh let me see here. Uh keep talking while i figure that out okay um interesting like so shonen manga always has the tournament arc but the way it's executed uh can differ wildly and he points this out in the limits of a tournament structure on page 93 uh in order to create a scenario that constantly builds manga of the 1980s turned to the tournament f- format 
the readers can't anticipate that this rising action will continue all the way to the peak. Famous examples include Ultimate Muscle and Dragon Ball, and it's a reliable structure that nearly guarantees success. But the tournament format isn't perfect, just like the economic bubble, the problem is what happens when you reach the top. Yes, <laughs> what happens? Uh, the, the interesting things are the events that happen within the tournament, how it like shakes it up. Um, Amangaka does, uh, oh yeah, after achieving the top victory, the next tournament arc starts again from the bottom. Amangaka does not want to be in the position of having to face a redo of the same story, and if the creator tries to go through with it, the result will feel incredibly forced. Just from a creative standpoint, having started from the bottom and built the story up to the top, you can't tear everything down and start over and still be able to face the toil of building it back up again. We've already felt the exhilaration of the peak. Hmm. Uh, did you find what you're looking for? Yeah. So okay. uh, this is where he goes into he, he wants to use an example of what not to do. So he <laughs> uses Kick-Ass 2 as an example, mm -hmm. which is endlessly amusing to me. So I'm going to switch to an example from film, specifically Kick-Ass 2, a sequel to the 2010 movie about a geeky boy who <laughs> tries to become a real life superhero. One character whom I particularly liked was a superhero called Hit Girl, but in the sequel to the popular film, Hit Girl gives up crime fighting and returns to a normal life. A story like that will only irritate viewers who will think, go back to being Hit Girl, quote unquote. <laughs> we don't want to see you not be Hit Girl. Everyone knows you're gonna go going to go, to go back to being her at the end, unquote. As expected, she does return to her vigilante persona at the end, but all that does is bring her back to square one, and that's hardly exciting to watch. So he's basically saying, have real character movement. Let your arcs grow. Don't make them, like, wishy-washy. Yeah, and it, that's that's an important lesson, I think, to take away from Kick-Ass 2. Yeah, thanks, oh. Rocky. All right, yeah. let's move on to the next chapter. Um, real quick, there's uh, okay. weak enemies in an orthodox method. That's, that's talking about how... And the tournament structure, like, uh, Stardust Crusaders worked because it was always rising and the fights weren't structured to, uh, like a typical tournament arc. But he also had the joke fights in there that were just, like, kind of gimmies, but were also interesting ideas for the, uh, the characters to show their powers, even the, uh, the weaker enemies. I think the sun falls into this, um, Wheel of Fortune a little bit. It, it's... It's an interesting point. Like, he took the tournament structure and then, like, twisted it a bit to make it suit his own ends. And Stardust Crusaders was insanely popular, so it definitely worked. For uh, sure. So, the, yeah, next chapter, uh, the next chapter is on art, which is obviously extremely <laughs> important to manga. Art. And I don't know if you know the page I'm thinking of, Jack, but there's a page, page number 130, that I'm going to call extreme bullshit on when we get to it. Oh, yeah, I saw this page, and I was like, fuck you, all right? <laughs> you know what you did. So, basically, he just goes off saying how, like, he, uh, what makes manga special is the art, obviously. And mm. uh, he talks about different ways you can draw your art, you know, realistic. And he, he says, sig he calls it signif signification, which basically just means, like, cartoon, cartoon mm -hmm. art. Yeah. Uh, Stretch, so he, pull. you know, you can use yeah. his uh, a comparison. So, like, when you look at the Oingo Boingo stuff in Stardust Crusaders, you jump back and forth between realism and signification. He uses it both in mm -hmm. in one chapter. So he has a firm grasp. Uh, clearly, has a firm grasp 
on what to, what to do. And he even says here, like, how to pursue both at the same time. And uh, he uses Jojolian as an example where he's going for, like, a highly realistic look. Mm-hmm. And that he only uses very little bits of cartoony art to exemplify things. Like we were talking about last week where we would see like Yasuho and Josuke yeah. turn into fucking uh, Looney Tunes when they eat <laughs> when they ate the pudding because to show how good it was. You know, that's when effective. You, when you go for a real realistic tone for most of your work, throwing mm-hmm. in little bits of like cartoon antics, like they give a strong message. Yeah, that's what makes like like the juxtaposition between those two, uh, com- like combines them to make the the whole thing better, because you're not just like monotonously doing like realistic style, realistic style, realistic style, or cartoony, cartoony, cartoony. By mixing them up, you're giving like the reader a bit of a reprieve between the two. It's like, like like just a a break and like oh that oh yes that's good that's good right and as good as as incredible as the artwork is in Jajolian, it can get kind of heavy sometimes and yeah. it starts to wear down on you after a while and you kind of just want to see these characters having fun a little bit so like that's that's when he'll like break into short bits of uh comedic relief and mm-hmm. the art style will get a little looser and like less less rigid but uh, I'm just going to go ahead and jump to fucking How to Draw Guns on oh page 131. Because, Araki, I read this and I immediately called bullshit on this. Because he goes on this rant about how you need to, if you draw the gun bad, it'll turn your readers off. Emperor is a bad gun. <laughs> I'm going to look up a picture of And I don't even want to hear the signification art, uh, argument for that because that just doesn't make any sense especially since he goes on here saying that if you don't draw the inner workings and the pistons and everything right that readers will lose interest well emperor it doesn't make any sense nothing about it looks like it would actually work yeah because like i'm i'm looking at emperor okay and in the very first appearance of emperor the chambers are positioned way below the barrel where the bullet what would come out um so like the chamber would just spin like no bullet should come out of there in the anime uh i like they corrected it so they shifted the chambers up a little bit so that the top chamber is actually um in line with the barrel you know like a real gun um i that i think that was one of the instances where actually I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna send you this picture from the OVA because this is such an egregious uh, gun. I hate this. <laughs> I don't know why. Like Emperor is the um, the hill that I'm gonna die on, but like it is because especially when he goes into such detail, like oh yes, I have a model gun on my desk. I always look at it before like I need to draw a gun. Bullshit. Like, no. My friend, my... You're Araki making that sensei. up. <laughs> okay, here's the gun from the OVA. Tell me, like... Wh- what, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what is going on there? Yeah, there's no way the bullets it make it to the It just looks like chamber. a toy gun. It yeah. just looks fake. But, uh... Yeah, g- so we're gonna get stuck on from this. that, uh... So we see, you know, Araki drew the titty, and he shows it off. Oh, yeah, yeah he... He, he did draw the titty. 
Yeah, um, and then we get uh we get we got a some a look at old Josuke. <laughs> oh gosh, he hasn't looked like this for a long time. No, and we get to see a great example of how Araki could never decide on where he wanted to put the the Joestar birthmark on Part Eight Josuke because here we see it on like his clavicle, which is that yeah that's not even on a bone that's just on his like ripped traps. Yeah, when it should be like. Uh, below your neck is where yeah, the birthmark he... usually is, but uh... I, but it, it moved around all the time. He would just like in early Jojolian. I don't know what he was in some kind of weird art rut in early Jojolian. Like he just could not decide what he wanted to do. Yeah, and once he found his rhythm, like it got real good. Which is yeah, like... early Jojolian was like just kind of a bit of a a eh, weird transition he... period. Finding its finding its feet. Um, before we end, I just want to point out one last section on page 142 while we're over here. Hamon and Stans make supernatural powers visible. Right. This, I think this was foundational to how Jojo works. Um, what I came up with was Hamon. If a character punched a frog and the frog was completely unharmed, the rock beneath it cracked open, that image would convey the power of the character's supernatural abilities. When I came up with that idea, I felt the thrill of success but it wasn't long before my editor told me he was tired of Hamon. I concluded that he had likely grown tired of the effect because it was only one kind of thing. I concluded that a broader assortment of powers wouldn't have the same pitfall. That's how stands were born. Stands are personifications of a user's inner energy. While Hamon made superpowers visible, stands took the next step and made them into characters. And, like, woof. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, that's basically him explaining why JoJo still exists today. So, like, let's be real. If he never thought of stands, JoJo would have ended probably oh, after Part years. 3. Yeah. Like if, if Part 3 was still Hamon focus, it would not have been nearly as successful. Stands are marketable. They're entertaining. They're a great way of expressing powers. Visually they, interesting. Yeah, and they're visually interesting, and they also make for more... Uh, inventive fight scenes yeah to end it there are still many strange phenomena i haven't yet made visible and i intend to continue challenging myself to find ways to draw them and like i don't think there's a more iraqi way to put that like dude's gonna draw until he's dead like yep we're gonna see a lot more fucked up stands like you thought doggy style was weird no no (laughs) my friend we're gonna get weird so, remember how we were going on about, like, calling bullshit on, like, how Rocky called out our bullshit, calling him bullshit in Pet Shop? Well, yes. this chapter here on setting is basically him explaining why that happens. And uh, What page? Uh, go to 152. So, a great thing, a great way that, to describe why he is so specific about his settings and explaining all the science of everything he writes about is mm. right here. We haven't covered Bao yet. We'll cover Bao eventually. Sure. Uh, no spoilers here. Mm. But uh, so one manga from my early career was called Bao the Visitor. It was during this time, I, it was during the time I was working on that manga that I began to realize the importance of setting. For an example, an evil organization serves as the antagonist, and I can't understand that I couldn't go anywhere with the story without first knowing how they acquired their funding and the kind of locations of facilities they controlled. So basically what he's saying is, is like, you can't just say 
these are your bad guys. You ha- you as the writer and creator have to know every little detail about mm-hmm. these characters, even if it doesn't make it to the page. Yeah, just for the, be there. Just for the sole reason that if you don't know all the intricate details, you, there will be inconsistencies in your writing. And so he specifically references that in the beginning of Bao, there is a scene that takes place on a train where Bao is being experimented on. The train runs along the San Riku coast, and in real life, that railroad hasn't been converted to electricity and still runs diesel rail, rail cars. Mm-hmm. I visited the area, and I knew that it was a diesel line, but for the purpose of the story, I wanted Bao to be electrified by high-voltage power lines. So I added in overhead power lines and drew the scene with Bao running atop the train. After the story was published, readers wrote in to notify me that the train route the train ran, route ran diesel lines, not electric. Even mm-hmm. worse, I drew it with a double track when in reality it was a single track railway. <gasps> I had drawn two mistakes at the same time. The readers who noticed this were likely never to re-enter Bao's world. I had created the grave failure of losing readers. <laughs> so while that boy. sounds very pedantic on the the part of the people that wrote to him, because obviously if you read or watch Bao today, you're not going to give a fuck about that because Bao still rules. <laughs> but at the time when nobody knew who know who the fuck he was and nobody knew what the fuck Bao was, if you're just some schmo reading a shonen jump and you see that and you know that railway you're gonna get taken out of the story yeah it just doesn't work exactly so if you know these real life locations you have to portray them properly or you're gonna get taken out of the story and he learned that lesson the hard way even though bow is like remembered as a cult classic it was still it still gave him a big lesson he's always learning i think is the point of this like He's he's still um, focusing his craft as he goes on. He's never reached the point like where he's just there, like at the summit. There's always some place for him to go. I think that's kind of the message of this book as a whole. Like, just keep, just stay on your grind. Like, that you're only gonna get better. Here are some tools to help you get better, but just do it. So the next thing in this chapter I want to look at uh, is when he talks about uh, more going into detail about research in real life locations. So he talks about mm-hmm. how for Stardust Crusaders, he actually went to all the places <laughs> that sure the did. characters went and he's out of his fucking mind, but it shows because the settings in Stardust Crusaders feel, feel weirdly authentic for... Well, he uh, writes them like a tourist uh, book. Yeah, yeah. They're, like, very authentic for a manga of its time. Mm-hmm. And it definitely goes a long way to making the, the story more believable. So he specifically uses uh, Vento Oreo as an example of this uh, taken to the extreme where we all know Araki loves Italy. That's, like, mm-hmm. a big he's, facet of who he is. He's a fan of Italy, you could say. Yeah, he likes Italy. So basically, for for the climax of Vento Oreo set in Rome... He wanted to perform extensive research in order to faithfully portray the city. So before going there in person, I studied how the city was built in depth, the geography and history, what kind of buildings were there, what the infrastructure was like, and more. I read travel guides and searched for pictures and committed as much of it as I could to memory. Then, when I had exhausted my research, I traveled to find things that weren't in the research, the things I wouldn't know I needed until I found them. As a result, the room I drew the Rome, the Rome I drew captured the real sights of the city, from buildings to the traffic, traffic signals and signs and the side streets and more. 
If you were to go to Rome and trace the path taken by Giorno, his allies, and the villain Diavolo from the Colosseum to the Tiber, I think you would find that I accurately captured the real distance. Which is just fucked up. <laughs> it it just goes to show fucked up. <laughs> how much how much love and effort he put into JoJo as a Especially whole. since this he basically went through all this detail just to draw a setting that his characters were gonna just destroy. Yeah, it's <laughs> the setting almost feels like a character at that point. I think he wrote that at some point. Like yeah. the the bottom line of this whole thing, like buy this book, you know? Buy this book. Yeah, buy this buy this fucking book. So let's uh let's say go to the next uh the next chapter real quick. Mm-hmm. Because he basically goes on about the the same sort of thing. Like he talks about going to the American Midwest for Steel Ball Run and just that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And on from there. So now we get to see an implementation example mm-hmm. with the process of making manga. So he, he this is where he goes into like the nitty gritty. Okay, so I have my idea, I have my setting, I have my characters. So this is how I actually go and fucking do it. Yeah. So I don't want to get into too much detail here because it's the sort of thing that it's kind of it's kind. Of, now we're really just reading a textbook at this point. Sure, but the overall point of this is to show from conception to finished product he uh, does one of these rohan one shots like he comes up with the setting uh develops the character before we get there i just want to talk about more early Jolian and oh my god early joshu i want to i want him dead he's horrifying oh god where is he oh yeah 192 huh. mm, oh he's huh. so horrifying he kind of looks like Oh, what was mm, oh, was that movie? The guy with the really fucked up head. Oh man. Oh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Do you know what I'm talking about? Was it called? Uh, yeah, mask. No, was mask? it mask? That was what was coming to my tongue. It's like. Mm, I think it might just be mask because mask movie. Is this the guy with the head? Yes. Yeah, it sure is. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's what that looks like. But sorry. Right, so what's particularly uh, interesting about this second to last chapter is he goes through the process of of describing how he created one of the entries in the the Spokashibi Rohan series. Mm-hmm. This is the one shot that's getting turned into the OVA. Oh, this this is the one. Yep, this is the one. Dope. They just released. Uh, they released some key art for it. Oh, that's really cool because this is an interesting concept. We're not going to get into it, obviously, but no, yeah. But they, uh, I saw the key art, and it has the the characters in it, like the little boy and the and the editor and everything. So yeah, this is what they're making. Wow, look at that! I'm excited. Yeah, so for that. he breaks it down. We see a couple pages, which is neat. And on the pages, uh, he has he added little uh, boxes to describe what he was doing when he was drawing in the pages. Mm-hmm. And we learn a little bit more about how he goes through his process of creating a one shot and how he, you know, he talks about how when you make a one shot, you should only have like three characters because anymore uh, it's going to get 45. Like, what was down. like the standard one shot for Shonen Jump is 45 pages. So 45 pages can only handle so much without feeling bloated. Yeah. He runs a lean ship. That's for sure. Yeah, so this that's just this chapter just describes the making of this one shot. Again, read it yourself. It's extremely interesting. Uh and then we'll just uh we'll just go to the conclusion. Yeah. So let's just do it. 
you know, and like I said in the beginning when we started discussing this, the conclusion is basically just him saying, I'll just read this passage. How to draw a manga? Does such a thing really exist? Is there a surefire way to draw a manga and have a hit? Can there be a manual for making a manga that will become a popular classic? <laughs> His answer is really is no. Just a, a big fat fucking no. You can you can try, and that's what yeah. he did here. Yeah, he basically just offered his method. He offered the look inside of his golden way to to kind of just, like, guide you into creating your own... He wants you to come up with your own golden way, basically. Yeah, like, take his and He wants to see you find your way to the royal road. (laughs) To use use this terminology that I love so much. Oh, man. It's so Japanese, but it's so... Like I said at the beginning, it's so sincere. Like, you can tell that, like, the way he writes this, he means it. And I don't think there's a, a better book around that really goes into the nitty-gritty of what it takes to make a successful manga. And, like, the sacrifices you need to make and the, uh, the practices that you need to uh, implement. I, yeah, I want to end off with reading this. Uh, this is the ending of the of page two twenty five because mm-hmm. it pretty much sums up his whole reason for even doing this. Sure, I want this book to be a kind of map in which in which are recorded the many different roads to creating manga. It's a map for climbing undiscovered mountains. It's a map for exploring underdeveloped and undiscovered lands. It's a map to bring you home alive when it's time for you to advance, but. But on the way, you got lost, or become unsure, or lost sight of the path, or ran into walls or cliffs. Come back to this golden path. Rest yourself. Calm your thoughts and find clarity. Then keep going onward. This book was written to be that map, even if it might only be written for one person somewhere out there. It is my deepest wish that this book will serve as a good map for all who read it. That's that's a good that's a that's a good conclusion. Like man. I wish I could. I wish I could write like that. Yeah. So on the whole, reading this was a really good experience. It was like a we joy. basically just did. We went over. We did a very, very high level overview of what happens. Oh, super in this surface. Book. So uh, buy it yourself. Like we've been saying, it's a gorgeous hardcover book. Looks great on your shelf. If you buy, if you buy Jojoniums, mm-hmm. it's uh, designed with the same aesthetic, so it'll fit in on your bookshelf with the rest oh, of them. Yeah, which I like a lot. So, if you're being a good boy and buying those Jojoniums, you get this too. <laughs> support this series. We we leech off of it a lot. So, support the releases when you can. Yeah, we bought these books. You can too. Uh-huh. Oh, but, uh, so that, I guess, is that's where we're going to end today. It was kind of like a little loosey-goosey sort of episode went a little long, but that's okay. Thanks yeah. for sticking with us. I hope you enjoyed the look inside this uh, weird little offshoot. Yeah, it, it was it was really fun. I like this. Um, as always, you'll find us on the subreddit on r slash Stardust Crusaders. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Google Play. Uh, talk to us. Tell us what you thought of this episode. Let us know if you bought the book at JoJo underscore Cast. Like, yeah, tell us what you thought of it. Uh, we would there. love to hear. We'd love to hear more thoughts on it. And uh, as for next week, like we said, we're going to do uh, Darby the Gamer, a full episode. Uh, I we, we have more of the... We have to do the Gorgeous Irene uh, At some still. point. We'll get yeah, there. Yeah, but we're we're pretty much in like the down and dirty with uh, Stardust Crusaders. So that might just be all we cover for the next few weeks. 
But uh, maybe it'll be fun though. We'll see what happens, and then once we get through that, you know, like we said, we're gonna get to bow at some point. We'll finish Gorgeous Irene, and there's always more stuff to do. We'll do more one shots, and then we'll see where we go from there. And if you guys have any thoughts about how the show should continue forward as far as what is the next big thing we cover. Like, if you've been listening all this time and you heard us cover the Diamond is Unbreakable anime, and if you'd still be interested in us covering the manga, like, let us know, because mm-hmm. we don't know what the fuck you guys want to hear, and we're down for literally anything, so just, yeah. just, just tell us. Who cares? Yeah. We're, 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 on, we're just along for the ride, just like you guys are. So we love you, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thank you.